just pause for a moment let's pray and ask the Lord just to bless the uh, preaching of his word so let's pray together Father we thank you as uh, Katie has reminded us tonight that you have not left us alone we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus and we thank you that you also have sent your Holy Spirit we thank you that his presence is here in this place and Father we pray that as your word is spoken that your Holy Spirit will come in power and will speak into the hearts and lives of each and every one of us may he speak to us with conviction and with clarity tonight through the word in Jesus name we pray Amen the 16th of November 2004 was a landmark day for a sizable proportion of the British population following months of heated debate numerous public marches and even an audacious infiltration of the parliamentary chamber the future of fox hunting in England and Wales came down to a solitary vote when finally tallied 321 MPs called for a ban on the practice only 241 called to preserve it and thus it seems the shape of country life in some quarters will be changing in the weeks and months to come about 2,000 years ago another crowd of people gathered to discuss and decide regarding a divisive issue indeed in this particular instance it was not a practice such as fox hunting but a person over which they disagreed a man named Jesus had recently burst onto the national scene in Israel and everyone agreed that he was a remarkable man but the question remained was he more? opinions varied some people said he really is God's promised saviour others disagreed they said no Jesus he's nothing more than just a carpenter from a town called Nazareth and still others tried to take immediate position they said he's a good man he's a prophet and so the opinion poll the Bible records was splintered the people were divided because of Jesus as they remain today in Edinburgh in 2004 and so this evening I want you to consider with me for the next few minutes the divisive choice which each of us must make a decision about Katie has already made her choice and she's affirming it this evening but what choice will we make about Jesus as we think about this let's turn in the Bible to John's Gospel in the second half of the Bible the New Testament and we're reading from John's Gospel chapter 7 from verse 25 there are a few Bibles and if you'd like to read along in those it's page 1072 John chapter 7 verse 25 and notice as we read the schism of opinions about Jesus at that point some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask 
Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly. And they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And may God bless to us the reading of his word. as I was reading this passage earlier this week, I came to see at least three phases in the people's interaction, their dialogue with the person of Jesus. As they're asking this question, who is Jesus? And I want you just to trace them in the passage with me. It would be good to have your Bible open in front of you. First of all, notice the questions they ask. I suppose that a young child could learn much about the world in which they live by mere observation. And yet good sense tells them that by the use of query, they can learn much more rapidly and accurately. Some parents with young children think that they are part-time answering machines for this reason. Questions are useful. And we do not stop using them, therefore, just because we enter into adulthood. And so it is then that this Jerusalem crowd seek to become more educated about the person of Jesus by asking questions. And there are at least three of them in our passage. They begin, notice, with what I would call a question of intrigue. 
Have you ever asked a question about something because you notice something that's strange? For example, why is it that they're putting Christmas lights up on the 1st of November? Have you ever asked that? And why is it that we put them up and then they wait three weeks before they turn them on? Is that just me? Maybe I'm strange. Bit of the background here, the Jerusalem locals were hosting a great Jewish festival that happened once a year called the Feast of Tabernacles. And at this festival they noticed something a little bit unusual. You see, they had been following an emotive drama, much more interesting than the dramas we see on the television soaps. For months now, this Galilean teacher named Jesus, up in the north, had been in the sights of the religious authorities. And they have been offended by his claims and jealous of his popularity. And it's all been, as it were, coming up to a boil. And here, Jesus comes to their very backyard, right onto their doorstep, indeed, into the temple precincts, and begins to teach. These people know that the authorities have been looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus. And so it strikes them as strange that they seem to be doing nothing. Look at verse 25. They ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Strange, they thought. And with no answer to satisfy them, one question leads to another, as it so often does. And so they raise next a question of interest. Verse 25, the second half. Have the authorities really concluded then that he is the Christ, God's Saviour, promised in the Old Testament? You can see their logic. If the authorities are not ready to cuff Jesus, maybe they're ready to crown him. Maybe they think he is God's Saviour. Could he be? The answer is, the question is raised in their own mind. Perhaps for the very first time. You know, sometimes it doesn't take a major life crisis to make you ask an ultimate question. Sometimes that is where we ask the fundamental questions about life. What's it all about? Is there a God? But sometimes it's almost a very trivial thing that will make, make us ask a key question. Perhaps you're here this evening and a lot of what we've been doing seems a little bit strange to you. And it intrigues you that someone would want to publicly declare their faith in a person called Jesus. It seems unusual to you that they would even be willing to be plunged beneath a pool of water to affirm that. And yet the very strangeness of it prompts you to ask a question. You ask why. Even more importantly, you ask who. Who is this Jesus that someone would be willing to affirm in that way. See how it happens? Question of interest. But notice verse 27, and beware. For no sooner have these people raised this question in their own minds than they quickly dismiss it. They find really the first reason that they can find, and they dismiss this whole idea that Jesus could be who he says he is. How easy it is to do the same, is it not? We dull our own interest with just the first thing that comes into our mind. It's possible to go deeper. I love Columbo. I don't know if any of you want to own up to watching Columbo still. I think it's quite cool. But 
The thing about Colombo is he just incessantly asks questions to get to the bottom of things. He's not happy with superficial questions and superficial answers. He wants to get to the truth. He's always got one more question, doesn't he? And so it is, there are some in the crowd who really want to get to the root of this Jesus. Who is he? And they ask what I would call a question of genuine investigation. Look at what they say. When the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Other people are quick to dismiss Jesus. But these people really evaluate the evidence and weigh it up. They say, if Jesus is the Messiah, then do his miracles match with that claim? If another Messiah were to come, could they really do greater things than this man? It's a serious question. I don't know if you've ever read through the Gospels or one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. These were written to give you serious evidence upon which to base your faith in Jesus. You see, becoming a Christian is not just a blind step of faith. You're presented with evidence upon which you make a verdict. The Gospels allow you to look before you leap. So, here's a suggestion. Read one of the four Gospels and ask some serious questions about it. For example, just to get you started. Ask, if Jesus is God and Saviour, does his miracles match his claims? That's what the people ask. Good question. Does his character mirror God's character? If he truly is God? Or does he slip up? Does his teaching carry the authority of God's word? And does his resurrection and his death seem to fit with his claims? See what responses you get when you question the evidence. Seriously. The crowd asks their questions. And as they do, Jesus responds. And so notice with me secondly, the responses Jesus gives. In response to the people's questions, Jesus makes several claims. Did you notice the first one in verse 28, where he claims to be sent by God? I am not here on my own, he says, but he who sent me, that is God, is true. You see, some people had been saying, Jesus, he can't be God's saviour. We know where he comes from. It's a place called Nazareth. It's just a backwater in Israel. And to a certain extent, Jesus agrees with them. He says, yes, you do. You know my home address. You know that I come from Nazareth. But he says, you don't know quite as much as you think. Originally, he says, I came from God. You know, this is uh, quite a big church, and people come from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of countries. Uh, Sometimes when I ask a person, uh, where are you from? They will say something like, well, I'm from Livingston. But I can tell from their accent that they clearly weren't originally from Livingston, maybe an American accent. They're not actually being dishonest because they're then going to say that originally I came from Ohio or someplace like that. And this is exactly what Jesus says. You only know half the picture if you think I just come from Nazareth. God sent me. And notice the second part of his claim. Not only has he been sent by God, but verse 33, he says, I will soon be returning to God. I'm with you only for a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. Christmas is coming up, and we think about how Jesus came down to earth. 
And yet it's important to realize that Jesus didn't come to earth on a one-way ticket. He came on a return trip. Our senior pastor was recently telling us about a trip that he and his family took to the Philippines. And it involved several stops, both on the way going and on the way back. It would have been nice if you could have just got a single flight. So it was that Jesus was about to return to the Father. But he had a few stops to make on the way. Painful stops. Difficult stops. Returning to heaven would mean, first of all, going through the agonies of death on a cross. And then three days later, the glory of a resurrection. Why? Why did Jesus have to make this particular trip? Well, he hints at it in verse 28. Did you notice the little thing that he says there? To the Jews, the really religious people, he says, you do not know God. You do not know God. Jesus claims to be sent by God, returning to God, all for people who do not as yet know God. You see, the Bible tells us this is our biggest problem. We don't know the God for whom we were made. And there's a reason for that. We don't choose to. From the very first human beings to you and me today, all have turned their backs on God. We've done our own thing. We've rebelled, went our own way. It's what the Bible calls sin. And Jesus came into our world, sent by God to die to deal with that problem. By dying on a cross, he took our sin on himself, bearing the punishment that should have been ours, dying so that we might live. And that's why Jesus can offer, in verse 37, what he does. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. This is what Jesus offers you tonight. Eternal life. It's what he can offer you because he has died on the cross for your sins. He's been raised to life for you. And so you can come to him and receive all that he has bought for you with his own blood on the cross. But of course you have to decide to make him your own. You have to choose to follow him. You have to come down on the other side of the dividing line that says, I follow Jesus. As we finish our section, we see, thirdly, the decisions that the crowd make. They come to their point of choice. I don't know what you're like, but I'm terribly bad at making choices. Awful. And what makes it really much worse is that so is my wife. And what this means is that our evening meal and trying to decide what to eat is sometimes like a game of verbal ping pong. You choose. No, you choose. Please, really, you choose. But here's something we've discovered. If we do not choose, we starve. (laughs) And so it is exactly the same, infinitely more seriously, with the person of Jesus. We must make a choice. And we see in this passage at least three choices that the crowd make. Some, very simply, decide to reject Jesus. They conclude that his claims are bogus. 
It's interesting to see, once again, what an arbitrary objection they come up with. They say that he doesn't come from Bethlehem, whom God's promised saviour was predicted to come from in the Old Testament. Of course, we know that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. But they use this reason as their justification, and they discard him. Twice the crowd tried to see him, seize him. Once the authorities try to arrest him. And we can do exactly the same. We can decide away with Jesus. We can say, I do not accept him as my saviour and my Lord. There are others in the crowd, you notice, who almost try to find a third way. And try not to outright reject Jesus. They seek almost to respect Jesus. I won't go into all the details of this, but they try to link him to a respected figure promised in the Old Testament, someone they call the prophet. They try to give Jesus kudos, but not reverence. He's a great man, but he's not God. He's not God's saviour for the world. How often do people take this line? They will say Jesus was a good man. He was a great teacher, but don't ask me to believe that he was God. Don't ask me to accept him as my saviour. Of course, the problem with this approach is that you cannot claim to respect someone and then ignore what they claim about themselves. You see, Jesus claimed, as we've seen, to be much more than just a prophet. And so their facade to respect Jesus was really nothing more than yet another rejection of him. That is simply not an option for us to take. Which leaves us with a third and final option. We're told in verse 31 that many in the crowd put their faith in him and very simply in verse 41 that others said he is the Christ just as Katie has affirmed tonight these people say I choose Jesus to receive him they trust him they obey him from then onwards I wonder tonight what you're going to choose you know, there's a program on the television, very popular program, and it's uh, multiple choice questions. You get four choices. Sometimes they know the answer straight away, other times they don't. Sometimes they go 50-50. But ultimately they have to choose one. So I ask you tonight, what is your final answer about Jesus Christ? Let us pray again. Father,